Good morning, everybody. It's been a wild week, hasn't it? We've had a beautiful blanket of snow. We had the State of the Union address. We had a presidential acquittal. Uh, one of our, actually, I think our longest standing member at this church, Jerry DeCamp, said to me before uh, this first service this morning, he said, I just want you to know, I'm going to stand up after your sermon and rip my bulletin in half. I said, that's just fine, Jerry. I, I, I will hold a press conference and call you a very bad person. <laughs> but it all illustrates, doesn't it? It illustrates um, that there are some things that we can control, but there are many things that we cannot. And, uh, and that, of course, points us back to the one who is in control, God himself. And so let's pray and ask him for help as we turn our attention to the scriptures. Father in heaven, we recognize today that you are the great and mighty king, and we proclaim that even from your word this morning. Help us now, uh, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would cause it to affect change in our lives, uh, that you would help us not only to recognize it intellectually, but that you would allow us to feel it in our hearts. And so we pray this for the sake of our good and for your glory. Amen. It is said that generosity is a trait that is desired by all, claimed by many, and enacted by few. Everyone wants to use their possessions well. Some of us do. Some of us don't. Everyone wants to look at the things that they have in their life, their skills, their money, their time, their relationships, their material possessions, and we all want to use them well, but man, oh man, it is hard. It is hard when you are in the throes of everyday normal life. Things seem to cost so much, and there's so much more that I want to own that I don't yet have. <laughs> Time seems to be ever fleeting before us, and it seems to be never enough hours in the week. And if I allow others to use the possessions that I have, well, they might wreck them. <laughs> and I've worked really hard to acquire them, and I'm working really hard to keep them. Generosity sounds great, but unless you are intentional about more and more growth in generosity, it seems like it will rarely actually happen. What we see is this thread throughout Scripture that one of the defining markers of a Christian is an ongoing growth in generosity. And so today we start a new series for the next five weeks or so called Generous King and Generous People. And over this handful of weeks, we're going to consider the different aspects of what the Bible says about generosity. And I hope that you will continue to grow as a result of this uh, disposition of generosity. And I'll talk more about the nature of a disposition uh, as we go on this morning. But to start, uh, I want to ask you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Typically when you think about uh, the nature of a trait or a disposition, 
uh, in the Bible, you are not often turning to an Old Testament narrative book like 1 Chronicles. Uh, but here we see in 1 Chronicles a major turning point in the history of God's people Israel. And as often is the case at these major turning points, it reveals something about where the people are and what they think. And it also reveals something about their ongoing desires for the future. This event is defined by generosity. By the generosity of God to people and a response to that generosity from people to God. The turning point I'm talking about is when in the Old Testament the nation of Israel is about to build for the very first time the temple. The place where they would all gather to worship God. The house of God as it was called. The place where he would even reside and make his manifest presence known. You might remember that King David desired to build the temple but God told him no. That it would be his son Solomon that would have that privilege. And so David did what any good king and what any good father would do. He obeyed God and before Solomon ascended to the throne, he set him up for success in many ways. He had plans and workers and then gathered materials. Literally tons of materials. Not only the wood and the stone that would be required, but the people of God gave a tremendous amount of precious metal and jewels in their worship to him. And now that those materials had been gathered and Solomon was about to be anointed king, David stood before the people of God and he prayed. And his prayer lets us into a glimpse of the generosity of God to humans. And it challenges us toward the response of humans to that generosity. So please, if you haven't opened your Bible yet to 1 Chronicles 29, it's found on page 357 of the Pew Bible. And follow as I read 1 Chronicles 29, starting at verse 10. This is what it says. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. We are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. And there is no abiding. 
O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. And then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord, your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. 1,000 bulls. 1,000 rams. 1,000 lambs. With their drink offerings. And sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day. With great gladness. David's prayer begins with a life-orienting recognition of who God is and what he means for the universe. And I say that it is life-orienting in its nature because if you understand God in this way, it will inform so many of the decisions and perspectives you have about what's happening in life. David recognizes the simple truth that God is the majestic king who owns everything. Don't miss it. Most of us intuitively do not function with that dynamic. That God is the majestic king who owns everything. Most of us go through our lives functioning intuitively in such a manner that believes that we can dictate our circumstances and ultimately decide our outcomes. But then when those circumstances are frustrated or the outcomes don't line up with what we thought they would be, we become perpetually frustrated. It doesn't take too long to consider what this plays out like. I mean, think about the things in your life that frustrate you immensely because you don't have control over them. Some of you are going on vacation to Florida this week. You desire, crave vitamin D therapy, sunshine, and 85 degrees in the middle of a cold, gray winter season. And you might get there to Florida, and for your whole vacation, it might be indeed 85 degrees and sunny. Or, you could get to Florida, and it could be 55 degrees and cloudy for the entirety of your stay. You can't control the weather. <laughs> but who does? God. Or, 
Have you ever considered the fact, I'm sure you have, why someone who is less skilled than you in your profession makes more money than you do? Or conversely, why someone who is more skilled than you are receives less accolades than you do? Or how about the fact about which family you were born into? Why were you born into the family that you were? Some with really healthy parents, some with highly dysfunctional ones. Some born into generational wealth, others born into generational poverty. Most of us born into families that are just hardworking and trying to make it. Why is that the case? God. Or what about the natural giftings and abilities of your children? The things that you wish that you could choose for them. Some of you are exceptional academics and you desire the same for your children, but as they grow, you see that their natural giftings and abilities lend themselves much more to the arts. <laughs> or perhaps some of you are exceptional athletes and you desire the same for your children until you sign them up for their first soccer league and then basketball league. And then you try your way through and you come to realize that maybe that's not the best for the child. They actually think through the world in much more mechanical terms. You can't control these elements of life. Only God can. And so when you recognize, as David did, that God's is the greatness and the power and the victory and the majesty and that all that is in heaven and in earth is his, as it says in verse 11, this changes your perspective on your circumstances. It changes your perspective on your money. It changes your perspective really and truly on your entire life. You are reoriented differently if you believe that that is who God is and what he does. God is the one who stands outside of time and space. And before the sun was shining, God was there. God created a universe so large that scientists believe that it would take a person between 200 and 500 billion years to travel around the universe at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. Try to get your mind around that. While at the same time, God making atoms in this universe so small that it would take a whole population of the world 180 million years to count the number of atoms in a cup of water. If you wanted to hurry it up a bit and count two atoms per second, it would only take 90 million years. Century after century, God has watched and enacted the rises and falls of the kingdoms of men while the while sitting on the throne of a kingdom that never ends. God and his angels have won battle after battle in the spiritual realm, some of which we get just glimpses of, but most of which we cannot comprehend. But ultimate victory is his nevertheless. And before you were born, before you breathed your very first breath, God knew you. <laughs> and for millennia, people who have reckoned with their humanity 
with the truth of reality, with their great ability and lack of control, with the wonder of creation and trying to grasp the nature of eternity, people have again and again and again turned and given glory to God. And so when David prays, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. He is saying very plainly and very simply and yet with great profundity behind it, God is the majestic king on the throne and he owns everything. Nothing happens outside of his purposes. That is what it means to be God. It is so easy to forget that reality, isn't it? It is so easy to forget that paradigm-shaping truth that God owns everything and nothing happens outside of his purposes. It's easy to forget when we don't get our way. It's easy to forget when we can't always see why. It's easy to forget when we want more than what we currently have. It's easy to forget when we see evidences of success in our life that are so easily linked to and tied to our gifts and our skills and our hard work. And yet, at the same time, we recognize that God owns everything. And nothing happens outside of our purposes. And the good news attached to that is that he is a generous king. The prayer moves on to illustrate the fact that the generous king gives generously to people. God owns everything. Nothing happens outside of his purposes. And yet he gives generously to people. Now that's not to say that in God's natural law, that there's no place for hard work, that there's no place for engaging in what matters, for personal responsibility, for exercising wisdom. But it is to say that all of those things have a particular ceiling in this life that certain types of human advancement only come by the generosity of God. Because he owns everything. And nothing happens outside of his purposes. David recognizes that in verse 12. Look at it with me. He says to the Lord in prayer, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. I wonder if you think about your life in these ways. Think about where you've come from, what you've experienced, what God has done in you. Think about how this applies to you. David mentions four things that God gives when he wishes and how he wishes. God gives honor. God gives riches. God is the one who makes people great. And God gives strength to all. Every single one of us have some elements of some of these, whether 
some more than others, some less than others, according to the purposes of God. God didn't have to give us any of these things. But he does, because he's a generous king. Maybe you're good at your job, really good at your job, and you say, I studied hard and I worked hard to get here. And that's true. But ultimately, God gave that to you. (laughs) Maybe you have an internal strength to withstand hard things, that your constitution is such that when the difficulties of life come, you stand up firm. And you might think to yourself, well, that was birthed in the crucible of fire. (laughs) And it was. (laughs) But God ultimately was the one who gave that to you. Perhaps you have a great reputation, much to the surprise of your spouse. There's a lot of people out there who like you and think very highly of you. Your spouse knows the real you and says, I don't know why so many people like you, but for some reason it seems like they do. God is the one that gives honor. He gave that to you. Or perhaps, just perhaps, you've accomplished something truly great. A leader of a great many people victory on the field of battle, the head of a company, or maybe something even greater. And you think to yourself, you look back on your life and where you're at today, and I hear this with some regularity, never in a million years would I have aspired to this. Never in a million years. I'm just a normal kid from around the block. God gave that to you. And it's amazing to think that King David had all of these things. He had honor and riches and greatness and strength. And yet he didn't attribute them to his courage in defeating Goliath, his resolve to withstanding the attacks of Saul, his ingenuity in acquiring wealth. Yes, he worked hard. Yes, he was responsible. Yes, he exercised wisdom. But he attributed these things simply and purely to the generosity of God. And that leads to a particular response. The response to God's generosity is to be generous ourselves. David gives us a glimpse of this in verses 14 through 16. Look at your Bible with me and follow. He says, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be thus able to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own, we have given to you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. There's no abiding. O Lord our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and you own it all. It's all your own, he says. Now David perhaps the greatest king in the history of Israel, the one who had a heart after God's own heart, the one who oversaw the incredible expansion of the kingdom, the one who would be the forebearer to Jesus himself, this King David of all of the kings of the world, this was the one that was the closest to getting it right. (laughs) This was the one whose legacy would go on forever. This was the one whose kingdom looked like it could never come to an end. And even he says, 
our days on earth are like a shadow. You know this to be true if you're 75 years old. And you're closer to the finish line than you are to the starting line. You know this to be true when you see how quickly your kids grow. That the days on earth are just but a shadow. You know this to be true when you talk to maybe one of your parents or your grandparents and it's their birthday and you say, how old do you feel? And they immediately make a dichotomy. On the outside or on the inside? On the outside, I feel like I'm 80. On the inside, I feel like I'm 35 and ready to do it all over again. And in light of this reality, King David getting closer to the end, closer to the finish line than he is to the starting line, looks at the days of his life and the brevity of life and the generosity of God and responds in such a way that says, because of God's generosity, we need to be generous ourselves. And in fact, our generosity is really nothing more than a reflection of God's generosity to us. When you give, you're simply giving what God already owns, he says. It's coming out of your own hand. And so what did they give? Why such a big deal? Well, in preparation for the temple, verses 6 through 10 give us a glimpse into what they gave, the people of God, the commanders and the tribes and the thousands and the hundreds and the officers. And you might look at verse 7, the passage right before this one, and say, In the service of the house of God they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. And you say, that sounds like some big numbers, but I don't really know what that means. What's a talent? What's a derrick? Well, I did the math. What did they give? They gave God a free will offering of a number of material goods that equaled 375,000 pounds of physical gold. You've never seen that much gold before. Neither have I. Just to give you an idea of what it's worth, 375,000 pounds of physical gold in today's market is worth about $6 billion. They give 750,000 pounds of silver. Today that would be worth of approximately $213.2 million. They gave 1.3 million pounds of bronze and 7.5 million pounds of iron. And in a town of steel workers, some of you know what that means. I had to, I, I had to do the math four times. Because I thought to myself as I, as I looked at this, and in my conception of the people of Israel, and at that particular time in history, surely there's no way that they gave 375,000 pounds of physical gold. I can't even wrap my mind around that. And so I did the math again, and I did the math again, I did the math again, and that's exactly what it is. In 1 Chronicles 29, 8, 
and 9 describes what happened next. It says, look at it with me. It says, whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jehiel the Gershonite. And the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now you don't give that freely out of obligation. (laughs) You don't give with that amount of joy if this is a law that is impressed upon you. What is happening here? How is this even possible? It's possible because so extravagant was God's generosity to them And so clearly had they recognized his generosity to them that they were extravagant in their generosity and willingness to give back to him. These people realized that the foundation of their generosity was not a goal, was not a plan, was not even a building. That it was the generosity of of God himself, who owns everything. So what does it mean to be generous? To be generous means to be open-handed, to be liberal in giving, to be marked by giving in abundance. Generosity does not simply refer to giving of our financial or material resources, though that's often the application. Generosity is a disposition. It's a disposition that includes money, but it also includes your other resources, your time, your skills, your efforts. Dispositional generosity is a sign that you understand how generous God has been to you. And I use that term dispositional generosity very intentionally because it is one thing, and you have seen it and probably experienced it, a call to be generous, a desire to be generous to a particular cause or purpose, and so you step out on the limb, and you go over and above what you think you can do, and for a season that is wonderful, and you receive great joy in return for that, but after a while, it often fades. Dispositional generosity, on the other hand, is something that is rooted not just in an external cause, or an external goal. Dispositional generosity is when your whole disposition, your life, your outlook changes because underneath it is something that is driving you forward. What is it? The generosity of God. I wonder if you're a generous person. I wonder if your default position is to give or to to hold on to. (laughs) I've been challenged by this in my own life through a number of different seasons of life, including right now. God's been so generous to me, and I want to continue to grow in generosity toward him. And I know um, that some among us, maybe the more cynical among us, would say, why are we talking about generosity? Is the budget in a really bad place? You've heard those sermons before. Why are we talking about generosity? Are you going to be doing something different or is there a new big thing? But you know, sometimes 
it's the most helpful to think about these harder aspects of spiritual growth when the budget is just fine. And it is. Or when there's no pressing need before us other than, by the way, the millions of people going to hell. And there isn't a particular physical need before us. I wonder if you might go on the journey with me. The journey over the next number of weeks to just consider, to look at the different aspects in the Bible about generosity. And consider what growth, intentional growth in generosity might look like for you. Because it seems like we never really grow in generosity until we make an intentional effort to do so. (laughs) And we never truly grow in dispositional generosity until we understand what we're talking about today. That God is the generous king who gives generously to his people. The foundation of our generosity is God's generosity to us. The text continues, and we move to our close, by looking at what David prays in verse 17. He prays that this generosity is something that God will test our hearts in and is related in some ways to being upright. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all of these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Throughout the Bible, we see the fact that God must test the heart of people to reveal their motives for the sake of encouraging them toward dependence upon him and loyalty to him. God tests our hearts. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We see it in a number of places in the New Testament as well where that call for God to test our hearts is also accompanied with a, with a self-testing that happens. And so James chapter 1, 4 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. While Galatians chapter 6, 4 says at the same time, let each one test his own work. And there are a number of other instances that we could cite. God tests our hearts in the area of generosity. And so part of our growth in generosity is to test ourselves in this area. When speaking about the application about this recently, I was talking to one of our elders, Mark Ledger, and he's got a great way to just take things that seem complicated and just say it very simply. And he says, well, Nick, it's just it's really clear. Okay, what is it, Mark? God gives to those who he can get it through. What do you mean by that? Just think about it. God gives to those that he can get it through. It's like you're a funnel for his work. And if we allow the provisions of God to pass through, he keeps the flow going. I wonder if you're that type of conduit for God's generosity. I wonder if you recognize the ways in which you generously give yourself as simply giving back to God of what he already owns. Test yourself in this. Because God tests us. And so the majesty and the generosity of God makes him worthy of worship and becomes the foundation by which we are generous. The generous king raises up generous people. 
The generous king raises up generous people. The generous people mirror the generosity of the king. The foundation of our generosity is God's generosity to us. And the prayer ends after asking for the people and for Solomon to stay near to the Lord. The people have already given substantially. And in worship, now they sacrifice. I don't think you've probably ever seen a field with a thousand bulls in it. Try to imagine it. I can't. They sacrifice a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs. And then they celebrate it all. And of course, their act of generous sacrifice would foreshadow the generous king's most generous act. Because as you know, God's most generous act is not giving honor or riches or the ability to do great things. God's most generous act was in the sacrifice of his son. That's why it says in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave. (laughs) He gave his only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's why it says in Ephesians 5 too, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave. (laughs) And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. That's why it says in 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God gave. God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. And the foundation of generosity then is God's generosity to us. I'm excited about what the Lord might do in me and us over the coming weeks. I hope that you'll think and pray carefully with me as we consider growing in this way. And let's ask even now that God would help the truth, this foundational reality sink into our hearts and our minds. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we need your help as we look at the world around us and our circumstances and our experiences. It is so easy to forget that you are the majestic king who owns everything. We thank you that you give generously. We pray that you would be fostering in our hearts and our minds an even greater sense commitment, conviction, desire to grow in generosity. God, that we would reflect you more accurately to those around us. And as we will see and experience, have even greater joy as a result. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.